This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bob Inc. Hey there, Bob Squad. Thanks for tuning back in. We're picking up uh, once more on Chapter 6 on the content of Special Revelation. I'm Caleb Castro. And I'm Andrew Smith. We've been working through this chapter talking about the content of Special Revelation. More specifically, we've been talking about God's covenants. We've been talking about covenant theology, particularly as it has been fleshed out in God's covenant with Abraham. And then we talked a little bit before about God's covenant with Moses, but we're going to continue our discussion of that, of the Mosaic covenant and of the law through what Bavink gives us here in chapter 6 of Wonderful Works of God. That is true. These are facts. These are facts. You can check them on Wikipedia. And if you don't like what you find there, you can fix it. You can change it. Oh, the internet. But you can't change what Bob Inc. wrote. That's rather static at this point. And you can't change the Bible. That would be heresy. That too. We're picking up on page 69. There we see Bob Inc. beginning to list some of the characteristics of the law that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. And we're just going to briefly walk through these attributes and see what they have to teach us. All right. Yeah, so Bob Inc. goes and gives us four primary attributes, four characteristics of the law. He lays these out in order. The religious aspect of the law, the moral aspect of the law, the holy aspect of the law, and the liberty of the law, freedom in the law. First there on page 69, uh, starting in that second large paragraph, he looks at the religious character of the law in, in speaking not only in corporate worship or liturgy, but that the religiosity of the law permeates through all ethical matters, the civil matters of, of government, the national government, all social aspects of the law that regulates the daily lives of the people and as well as the political specifics. Most importantly, at the center of this law is this relationship between God and his people, which, as we've already talked about, is a covenantal relationship. And therefore, we get Bob Inc. saying here that this is covenantal law. Above the law, you have the prologue to the Ten Commandments, to the Decalogue. I am the Lord thy God who hath... This is Bob Inc.'s words. He's using some... Well, the translator is using some King James-like English. I am the Lord thy God who have led thee out of the house of bondage. This is what God has done for these people. This is how God is keeping his promise to Abraham, as we talked about before. But now, the law is the terms of the continuation of that relationship. Boving says it is a covenantal law and it regulates the life of Israel as Israel must live it according to the requirements of the promise. Now, some might hear this, they hear requirements of the promise and they might be inclined to bristle a little bit. Why do you think that is, Caleb? A couple pages ago in this very chapter, Boving had spoken of how you have two major reactions to the law. On one hand, you have the nomists, those who overemphasized aspects of the law. They're looking for the essence of the religion and being boiled down to the law and regulating ethical life, regulating morality. Basically, it's faith plus works and a special emphasis on 
the works themselves. So I think some people might bristle when you simply use language about law. There is an aspect of the law that is binding. It places Christians in captivity. So rightfully, there is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to stay away from legalistic language. On the other end, you have antinomianism, a desire to push against the requirements of the law. In Bobbing's words on page 62, these are others who despise the law and ascribe it to a lower god, who consider it as representing a lower religious position. That god would be too much impinging in the freedom that we have in Christ, uh, especially now in the New Testament. Some traditions will even make a real hardline split of the things that carry over from the Old Testament. That was a time of nothing but law. That was a time where, you know, God acted with Israel, where they had to earn their salvation. But in the New Testament, we're freed from that. It's all about grace. There's very little that has to do with law, like back then. We see this take various forms. There are various strains of Lutheran theology that try to make the law and the promise or law and gospel completely antithetical, having nothing to do with one another. You also see this in like dispensationalism, where the law essentially only applied to this era. It only applied to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We don't have that. We don't need that anymore. It's also taken up among certain strands of our Reformed Baptist friends where they will say that, for instance, even the Mosaic Covenant, even the Abrahamic Covenant were covenants of works and that we don't get a covenant of grace until Christ. So it takes a lot of different forms, but there are a lot of theologies out there that any idea of law and promise having anything to do with one another really makes people uncomfortable. But here we have Bavink talking about requirements of the promise because... God is keeping his promise because you are God's covenant people because of the grace he has shown them in delivering them from out of Egypt. They are now to live this way in the world. You know, it's again, guilt, grace, gratitude. We keep coming back to this as we should, but that was functioning in the old covenant just as it is in the new. I think it's also uh, worth pointing out. You quoted Bobby Kira saying that this is a covenantal law that regulates the life of Israel. Bobby also notes that it's a historical relationship, that the Lord is appealing to what he had been doing already prior before Israel went to the mountain at Sinai to receive this law. You know, uh, as we said in the last episode, they had uh, observed the Passover on the basis that they were the covenant people. The Lord revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses, appealing to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord is taking historical precedent for bringing this to them and revealing his will for them as the called out chosen people of God. Bobink notes that the very first characteristic of the law is religious, tells us um, that this is a world system. It's an all-encompassing worldview and, and way of living life on the basis of their historical relationship to God, is revealing himself to them. And I think that segues as well into our second point, because something we see in this law is the morality of it. And we say, well, what is morality? Morality is absolute right and wrong. And where do we get that? It's ground even in the nature of God. And so that takes us to the second characteristic that Bavin gives us of the law, which he says it is a law which is moral through and through. Now, this is not to set aside the threefold distinction, for instance, that is made in the Westminster Confession in chapter 19, where you have moral, civic, and ceremonial laws distinguished. Bavink even mentions that distinction 
distinction and says it's a good classification. But he also says that the whole law is inspired and sustained by moral principles. The moral principles are the moral law. Now, the moral law we see summarized in the Ten Commandments, you know, the first table, love God. The second table, love neighbor. We see that summarized also in the great commandments, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law is binding forever. It's been binding for as long as the earth has existed. You can read, for instance, in Westminster Confession, chapter four, that man was created with the moral law on his heart. It's something innate to all of us. We can suppress it in unrighteousness, but we always have it because it's part of the image of God that is impressed on us because it is rooted in God's nature. It is what God's standard of right and wrong is. Yeah, his own holiness and righteousness is given to man at the time of the image of God. This is why Adam is able to tell what is right or wrong. This is why he is uh, born in a state of innocence. And yet, even when this image of God is corrupted by the sin, there is still uh, abounding moral principles because God still exists. God hasn't changed. God is still holy and righteous. You can uh, refer to uh, one of our older episodes on bobbing on the conscience to find out a little bit more about the role that morality plays in relation to the fall, the post-fall, uh, the consciousness, and uh, as well as aspects of the law. Here, though, Bobink notes that uh, the moral law is the basis of the civic and ceremonial law, as uh, Andrew just said. Jesus gives a demonstration of this. Uh, he references Matthew 19, 8 on the teaching of divorce. To quote Bob Inc., Jesus himself said that Moses permitted giving a writing of divorcement to a married woman because of the hardness of their hearts. So even at the time of Moses, there was an avenue for a Jewish man to divorce his wife, not because it was a good thing, but because of the hardness of their hearts. And Bob Inc. though notes, however, the spirit which permeates the Mosaic law is the spirit of love. So he's saying there's a principle in the Mosaic law. Bobin continues, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, Leviticus 19.18. That is the second commandment like unto the first, Matthew 22.39. And therein the whole law is fulfilled. And so love, even in relationship to a, a man and a wife having uh, marital issues, love supersedes. It has priority in principle over the issues that might cause one to divorce uh, because of sin. And this is where Bob Inc. also said too earlier in this paragraph, while the law is the same always, I mean, these moral principles always apply, the specific applications may not always be the same. You know, for instance, that think in our day of like technology, like there's nothing in the Mosaic Law that specifically tells us how to conduct ourselves on the internet. There's things we can learn from the moral law about how we should do that, but there's nothing like thou shalt not spend this amount of time on certain website or whatever. Yeah, so application of these laws from the time of Moses in national Israel to the time of today, they, they may look different. So for example, uh, you have an Exodus 21 where the prescriptions of the law are detailed. Exodus 21. Uh, in verse 28, the word says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. 
if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Here in uh, Exodus 21, 28 to 30, this portion I just read, it's not as likely that most of us own oxen, maybe some various farmers and such, but... You're clearly not from my part of the world. Uh, I'm clearly not. California. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from, you know, more of the, the, the Midwestern part of the country and... Maybe they're not oxen per se, but things that are pretty close. <laughs> now, you have a prescription of a law here, uh, a regulation for national Israel. If we were to go and take every single thing in the Bible to be utilized as the basis of our own, in our case, United States civil law, it would be a little bit strange. Uh, for one thing, I had noted here from Exodus twenty-one twenty-nine that if an ox had not been kept in his pen and the owner had been warned and this ox is pretty violent and it goes and kills someone, not only shall the ox be stoned, but the owner. Do we want to go and apply this to uh, our daily civic life? There's a difference between the civic laws, as we've noted, and the moral law. The moral law, not being in a uh, theocratic context, still has a teaching for us here. Keep your ox fenced in so they don't get out uh, and so they don't do damage. Or perhaps, let's say you have an upper story of a house and uh, you have a patio out there, but you never built a fence around that patio and, you know, your child gets out onto that deck onto that patio and uh, the child steps off and is injured or worse. A general moral principle here would be put the fence around that deck or patio. And this is important as we look at the bigger picture on the law and especially in light of other things we looked at because earlier in this chapter, Boving told us about this administration of the law as something temporary. But then we also have here things that are permanent and binding. And this is again where these distinctions of the Westminster Confession help us, the moral, civil, and ceremonial but also what Caleb is describing here, these idea of more or less moral principles that can be derived from looking at the civil and ceremonial law. This is, for instance, this is the concept that the Westminster Confession is talking about in chapter 19 when it talks about general equity, that there are moral principles that we see at work in the law. Even the civil and ceremonial law, though they don't specifically bind us, there are ways they inform us. So like in these examples Caleb has provided, what we're seeing here is our duty to preserve the life of our neighbor, to protect the life of our neighbor, to not do anything to endanger our neighbors. And does that mean we apply down to the letter this civil law as it has been presented? No, not necessarily. We live in a different world. What we can see the principle of is we need to not do anything to put our neighbors in danger or to endanger their wives. And this is, for instance, what our Reformed Standards take up, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, for instance, when they exposit the Ten Commandments. You might look at them and you'd be like, well, how do they get so many things out of just like one command? The answer is a lot of it is going through passages like this and seeing how the law was applied in its day and transferring those principles to the present. How does the law apply to us now? And this is important when we look at teachings that are popular in our days, for instance, Theonomy is an increasingly popular perspective um, among those who would call themselves Reformed. And what they would say, like, for instance, Greg Bonson taught the position that the civil and ceremonial laws were more or less case laws to apply the Mosaic law, but in the sense that those laws then, as they are written, remain binding to us. And that is to load them with more significance than they have 
in this present age. That's not what those laws are meant to do, though. They were meant to be specifically informative in their time, and they can teach us principles now, but they're not to be applied down to the letter now insofar as, well, we need to start, you know, fining people for not putting fences on their roofs or things of that nature. But it may mean things like, for instance, you know, so we talk about the ox example. Let's say you, though not willfully, you somehow accidentally cause the death of somebody. We do have laws on things like, you know, involuntary or negligent manslaughter, things like that. That There is a principle in which, in some manner, even if you don't deliberately murder someone, you are responsible for their death. Civil society does reflect this in a way, but also as Christians too, and how we think about the law and how we think about sin, these things do help us. I want to put that into one more example there, I think can especially show uh, the difficulty of taking theonomy as a doctrine in applying the law to our daily civil and social life. Going back again to that example of the ox from Exodus 21, 28, once more, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. Now, what if you have, uh, say, in this day and age, a dog that has been prone to being fairly wild and has bit someone in the past? You know, you were able to go and maybe uh, the, the, the person that it bit uh, decided not to press charges. The dog's never acted like that, and you've had it for a long time. But then uh, one day that dog gets out, and it... Ah, let's say it kills a child, okay? Now charges may come up again, and the dog may be ordered to be put to death. How is it that the government has the capacity to make this order, to order the dog to be put to sleep? They may not be operating in a uh, specific intentional Christian application. You know, they may be a non-believing judge, and yet they have some kind of concept of morality as a judge. And according to our civil laws, there's a basis in which the dog should be put sleep not only that but also the owner being held liable the owner being held liable though if they were to follow the biblical commandment here in the old testament uh, that owner would have to be put to death but the owner uh, maybe imposed a, a enormous fine maybe some kind of uh, civil services uh, something or other you know is this okay for the government to act in this capacity well i think we would have a very hard time saying that it's wrong for them to do so but if we were going to take a strict theonomic interpretation we would have the issue, for instance, in that there's nothing in the Mosaic Law that talks about ownership of dogs. In fact, dogs were unclean under the ceremonial law, so if you had a dog, that would have opened up its own other set of problems. Although theonomists, most of them anyway, don't treat the ceremonial law the same way as they do the civil in arguing for its continued validity. Well, we're uh, running out of time here, so we're going to have to stop for now. We hope that it's been helpful and edifying in some manner. Uh, we always find, especially here in this chapter, Bobbing's just been so fantastic in, in treating special revelation. He's great. He's special. He's so awesome. He is. He's the best. Somebody should do a podcast exclusively devoted to his works. We'll leave that to someone else, because I don't know what we do here. I don't know what we do here either. Actually, I do know what we do. We do the tote zines thing. We do? We do. Since when? A long time ago. Long time ago. Long, long time ago. <laughs> well, we're going to end it there. Leave you with that to ponder a lot of things that we said with words and phrases and pithy turns of phrase and the non-pithy turns of phrase 
Yeah. Well, tote scenes. Tote scenes. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.